Welcome to the Consumer Rights Talk. I'm your host, Adam Deutsch of Northeast Law Group in Massachusetts. Today is the launch of our new interview format. The podcast aims to publish a new episode every other week. In this format, I have the privilege of speaking with consumer rights attorneys from across the country. Each guest will speak to their unique experiences, why they became lawyers, and how they ended up practicing consumer rights law. We will also get into details of specific areas of focus as the guests share practice tips and lessons from litigation. Why am I doing this? And why are so many attorneys agreeing to donate their time? A common theme developed early in the process of getting this idea off the ground. Consumer lawyers kept telling me that they are willing to share ideas and insight because we need more attorneys to fill the role of representing consumers. There's a common consensus that there are more cases than attorneys to prosecute them and the desire to share knowledge to help ensure the best outcomes in court is ever-present. Generally, consumer attorneys practice on fee-shifting statutes with the directive that we are private attorneys general representing individuals against corporations who have more resources. We are in this together, and we must do everything possible to share knowledge with the goal of improving outcomes for our clients and consumers everywhere. In order to get the most out of the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, You can also listen to the podcast by going to northeastlawgroup.com and clicking on the podcast section. When you go to iTunes, please do take a moment and leave a review if you like what you hear. It will help other people find the podcast, consumers, attorneys, etc. We're all in this together. Now, starting out our new series, we have a special guest who is at the center of the consumer advocate universe, Ira Reingold. He began representing consumers in the greater Washington, D.C. area in the early 1980s and went on to influence the overhaul of lending practices and foreclosure law in Chicago. Thereafter, he became the executive director of NACA, the National Association of Consumer Advocates, where he remains today. If you're not a member, become one. NACA is a trade organization of more than 1,500 attorneys committed to the representation of consumers victimized by fraudulent, abusive, and predatory business practices. In our discussion, Ira talks about how his time as a litigator influenced the leadership he now strives to provide. We hear about ongoing projects and goals for NACA and discuss a vision of consumer rights for the future, politics and all. Without further ado, here's our talk. Ira, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, you know, you are the absolute perfect guest for the relaunch of the podcast with the interview series. Uh, so thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, my pleasure and my honor. <laughs> All right. So what's it like down in, in Washington, D.C. right now? <laughs> uh, well, for us consumer advocates, this is not the greatest time we've ever had. Um, we have we have probably the worst administration I've ever seen in our lifetime, and that's saying a lot because I've lived through the Bush years, I've lived through other years. Um, it is particularly unfriendly to consumers. Um, I think the only thing that's good for us at this point is at least the last election. We now have some friends in, who are in charge of the committees in the House of Representatives. But Washington, D.C. is a really tough place for people who care about consumers and consumer advocacy. All of the issues that we've worked on for the past couple of decades really are under attack. And um, we're trying to hold on until the next election. Hopefully we can um, uh, keep some of the protections that we built over the last decade. 
And before we dive into the current climate, I'd love to ask you some questions uh, to dive a little bit further back. Because before you were the executive director of National Association of Consumer Advocates, um, you were yourself a consumer advocate, and you've seen a number of cyclical crises through your your career. Um, How did you get involved with, you know, representing consumers in the law to begin with? Sure, sure, sure. I, I, I try not to go too far back. But I've been a, I graduated law school in 1986. I've been an attorney for over 30 years. And after graduating law school, um, I knew I was going to do poverty work. My interest was doing, working on, on, on issues affecting people who lived in low-income communities. And I spent a couple of years actually working as a community organizer doing poverty work in, in rural parts of Southern Maryland. And there I met the head of the local legal aid program, and, and they encouraged me to become a legal aid attorney. And I did that in Maryland for a number of years where I did a lot of work around homelessness and public housing and on welfare rights issues. Um, and I did that for a number of years and, and enjoyed it enormously. Worked my way to, uh, my wife and I moved to Chicago in 1992. I spent a few years working as a legal attorney in Maryland. And then after moving to Chicago and helping raise my son, my oldest son, for a year, I went back to work and worked for Legal Assistance Foundation of Chicago, where I, again, did a lot of public housing work, did some, a little foreclosure work, did some auto fraud cases, did some consumer cases. And what happened was is that um, we had gotten a grant at at the Legal Services Program to um, do some foreclosure prevention work. And our executive director at the time came to me and said, would you like to take this money, this small grant money, and do some foreclosure work or see what you can do to help people who are facing foreclosure? And it wasn't, it was interesting. At that point, it was not a big issue. It was around 1995. Uh, but I said, I'm happy to do it, 1995, 1996. And I said, I'm happy to do it, uh, but you need to let me do what I think is necessary. Um, let me figure out what the problem is and let's identify what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And he said, fine. And I went out there into all the poor communities of Chicago and discovered that all of the low-income and low-income, particularly African-American, Latino communities were being devastated by these terrible loans that were that were stealing equity from people's houses, were stealing their homes. I mean, this is before it was even called predatory mortgage lending. Mm-hmm. And with that sort of discovery, being on the ground, going to church meetings, going to community meetings, meeting with police officers, meeting with anybody who dealt with anything to do with home ownership in the city of Chicago, we discovered there was this enormous problem, this enormous people problem with people losing homes. And I developed a project out of that where we raised a substantial amount of money, brought a number of attorneys on to staff it up, and we started doing cutting-edge litigation around the more predatory mortgage lending problem. Problem. I think we helped actually create that word predatory mortgage lending mm-hmm. along with some other people around the country. Um, and so we were doing some really innovative cases at that point, sort of making it up as we went along, trying to figure out you know, how to make the law apply to protect all these people who clearly their homes were being stolen. And I did that for a number of years in Chicago until around 2001. In Chicago, we were the backstop. I was in court almost every single day. I had staff in court every single day. I had judges who thought we were public defenders. Right. I'd get calls calls in my office from judges saying, hey, you, you need to get down here. I've got somebody you, I want you to represent. There was really that kind of thing happening in Chicago where we were the, we were sort of the, we were the last bastion of trying to save all of these houses in Chicago. And so I learned a 
caught about consumer law. Again, made a lot of it up on the fly, um, you know, and and as you as homeowners would come in, you'd recognize they had all these debt problems, they had credit reporter problems, and they had auto fraud problems, and you began to sort of delve into all those areas and, and develop relationships with other attorneys and and figure out ways to solve holistically the problems of, of these folks who were being attacked on all ends, not only losing their house, but having this enormous amount of debt. So that's sort of how I worked my way into consumer law. Um, and then the opportunity came around in 2001 to come back to Washington, where I had, I had gone to law school, and where my wife and I, uh, when I first got married, and we came back to Washington and, um, to run NACA. And, and I timed it well. It was August of 2001, so we were there for about a month before sort of all hell broke loose in Washington after September 11th. But it was, it was a really interesting time, and that's sort of how I worked my way um, here to NACA and sort of how my experience starting doing poverty work and then working my way to consumer protection came about. And when you joined NACA back in 2001, what position was that in? It was as executive director. It was. Um, we were a very small organization at that point in time. There had been some... I, the organization was founded around... this sort of the mythology around the organization, but I think it basically was started around 1994. Okay. And it had its first permanent executive director a few years earlier. I mean, a few years later, maybe around 1998, 1999. But it was a very small staff. Membership may have been around 200 people or so. And, and, they, were, and they were doing a nationwide recruiting effort to find somebody to step in and help grow NACA and help, help develop it. And I guess I had built a reputation in Chicago uh, because I was running, I was running this project, and had brought a number of attorneys along, and I was contacted actually by uh, 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 Marco Saunders at National Consumer Law Center, and said, "Ira, you should come and apply for this position." And that's sort of how it happened. So I actually came here as executive director. So over the arc of your time at NACA, uh, what are, are are the biggest changes between you know let's let's step back from not getting into changes in legislation the you know sure, we'll, sure. We'll, we'll talk about the CFPB things like that but uh, in terms of the actual organization how have you seen its trajectory over time? Well, I think I mean we've just grown to be a well respected organization amongst all consumer advocates. There aren't a lot of consumer advocate organizations in this country. But I, I think we are now one of the most respected organizations amongst our peers and amongst other members in the community. I think we've grown to be a much more professional organization. Our point of emphasis, in the beginning, we were trying to figure out what our identity was. What was our purpose? What were we trying to accomplish? And I think over the years, as we've added more staff, as we've added professional staff for membership, for, um, for, membership, for training, for legislative uh, for, for our legislative advocacy, I think we've grown to be a pretty effective organization and a professional organization. And I think we've really more clearly defined our mission. And our mission, you know, our underlying mission is to make the world a better place for consumers and to make the world fairer, making the marketplace fairer. But our substantial, but our underlying mission is really to help grow the consumer bar, is to give people, people who want to be consumer attorneys the opportunity to succeed as consumer attorneys, to teach folks that there's ways to enter this field, to do well and still do good, to, um, to build a career. I think one of the things that I've discovered over the years is that, you know, when we first started, there just weren't a lot of consumer attorneys around the country. There's still not enough consumer attorneys around the country. But I think what we've seen is there's a beginning to recognize that consumer law is a really important area. You see growth in the teaching of consumer law. And 
they're beginning, and I think we're now at a precipice of really developing consumer law as a career path for people. How do you, you know, how do you graduate law school and not get sucked into the track that law schools try to suck you into? You know, working for big law, but in fact, you can be a plaintiff side attorney. You can represent consumers, and you can you do well by yourself, right? You can. You can own your home, you can have your own business, you can raise a family, and you can do good in the process as well. And I think that's the evolution that we're seeing is that we've become a much more professional, you know, bar, most much more professional organization. And I think we've created more and more opportunities to, to grow the practice of consumer law. There's so much truth to that. I mean, when I was in law school, I graduated law school in 2010. And right. So, you know, and I went to Seton Hall in Newark, New Jersey, and, and there, to my recollection, there weren't consumer law classes being taught. Uh, no. And, and I, I was in that, you know, that, that little time period where you go in expecting a 90 to 95% placement rate for hiring when you get out. And then I get out and it's about 40% of the people with jobs, right? Um, yeah. And, and the job that I, you know, and at the time, my view of consumer rights, you know, be, being a, a civil litigation consumer rights attorney was basically you go into the nonprofit world and that's it. Right. Um, and I think that, yeah. that's right. You know, that, that was certainly the view. And I, I fell into it staying in New Jersey. I started doing foreclosure defense work and then slowly got into a plaintiff's practice out of predatory lending and expanded much like your career into outside of housing and going into these other statutes. Um, now, I understand that, that NACA has actually started recently a, a program to develop, uh, you know, a, a recruiting or club system within law schools. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Well, it's actually, there's actually two prongs to it. It's actually really interesting. So, well, as we talked about, one of the things that I find the most frustrating is that people who want to do consumer law practice, who want to sort of help people who aren't, you know, who aren't being represented by big firms, the little guy against the big defenders, there's really not a career path for them. And so what we've done is we're doing two things right now. One is we have begun starting law school chapters of NACA. So there'll be NACA chapters. The first few are going to be introduced in the coming months. Um, we're looking for, we're, and, and what we want to do with those is, is show folks or teach folks or give, give, um, give the benefits necessary for people in law school to see that there is a career path here and to sort of build mentorships and create opportunities for people who are in law school who want to pursue this path. Now, still today, I mean, what law schools do not train people to be lawyers particularly well. I mean, I think that's just the absolute truth. A lot of law schools simply train you to sort of fit into the factory of big law. Mm -hmm. um, what law schools don't train people is if they, if you want to have a small practice, if you want to, you know, you want to run a business, law schools don't really teach you that. They don't teach you how to enter the world of consumer law. And still today, if you, the easy entry point into consumer law is to go work for the government or to legal aid, right? It's a public interest career. But if you want to be in private practice and represent the little guy, want to do good work and feel good about the work that you do, the opportunities are small. So the law school chapters is one way of beginning to connect existing NACA members, people who are doing consumer law with people in their community and law schools nearby, and, and build those relationships so that they make that transition easier for them. The second prong of what we're trying to do, and I'm actually heading to um, Salt Lake City in a few weeks, we're really interested in an effort that's going on in a number of law schools around the country. They have these incubator programs. And the incubator program is a really interesting idea that allows people 
who are graduating law school um, and, and don't want to follow the big law path um, to have some support in place if they want to start their own firm, if they want to go into private practice, basically incubate. And there are different models for it. But basically, the law school provides the resources for somebody who wants to start out opening their own small firm or being, you know, one or two person firm. And that's a lot of where our members come from. And so in the incubator programs, the law school might have space for people and they'll give them the technical assistance and the phones and the computers and access to all the legal research that they need for a year or two where they can get on their feet where they don't have to worry about the cost of overhead, but in fact have an environment where they can then begin practicing law, building a reputation, building connections in the legal community, um, where they can actually, you know, basically hang up their shingle without worrying about the overhead expenses. And a number of law schools are doing that. And where I'm going, when, when we've begun to partner with these places to say not only is, you know, that a good idea, that we really need to train people to, to, to start their own businesses, but that consumer law is a perfect mix yeah. for people who want to do this kind of work, right? I mean, you know what our membership looks like. Our membership are mostly small firms. And the fact is, is that consumer law, because of the way the statutes are driven, the way that attorney's fees work, um, it, it really it really targets people who don't have money to, to pay attorneys, but there are ways that attorneys can build a business, get paid, and be pretty successful. And so getting into these incubator programs, these people who are just starting out, who don't may not know enough about consumer law, and teach them about the opportunities of starting a consumer law practice. So I, I think we want to grab people as soon as possible and say, hey, this is a possible career path for you. You don't need to be sucked into whatever law schools are sucking you into, but in fact, if you want to do good, if you have sort of a, a, a mission to, to help those who are less fortunate, who want to do good by people in your community, here's a career path that you can follow and you can be successful at it, and you can earn a good living and have a good life, too. I think that's absolutely fantastic. I mean, there's so much in there that you're achieving. One of the things, my first conference with NACA and the National Consumer Law Center was in 2016 in Anaheim, California. And uh, I've been going to as many of the conferences as I can since. And, and I am just uh, about a little over two years on my own. I had practiced with a, a you know prior firm. And I've just been so impressed by uh, how much other NACA members provide that mentorship. I mean, talking about how law schools don't really teach you how to be a lawyer or an entrepreneur for that matter, because the reality is most of us end up in small practices, right? Yep. Um, and That's absolutely the truth. And I mean, I, I think that uh, one thing that you've done remarkably well is really foster an environment of true mentorship. There really seems to be a theory that the rising tide lifts all boats and there are just more clients out there, uh, more consumers being taken advantage of than there are attorneys to represent them. No, that's absolutely right. And I think what's really interesting to me is when I have when we have people come in from other careers, whether they were doing personal injury work, whether they're doing defense work, I think when they come to our conferences or they meet with us or they talk to, to folks, they're really surprised. At our, our conferences, our meetings, our community is different than any bar or community that you're ever going to find. And, and the points you make are exactly right. The rising tide does lift all boats. The fact is there are enormous, there is such a discrepancy between the number of lawyers that exist and the number of consumers who need lawyers who don't do consumer law. 
well. But the idea is, is that you have an enormous demand for consumer attorneys, enormous demand, and there's a very low supply. Mm-hmm. And so our membership really wants more people to come in. They're not thinking about other attorneys doing this work as competitors, but they're thinking of them as colleagues, as people who they can collaborate with, because there's so much work to be done. Uh, you can open up, you can you can name a city in this country, a town in this country, and you will find a lot of cases. One of the things that we found in terms of collaborations, one, everyone's willing to help, but two, in whatever community you choose, if you say you're going to do consumer law, there you're going to get a lot of referrals from other attorneys who don't do those cases. There is such a gap between what the need is in consumer law, what the need is for consumer help, and the number of attorneys who actually know how to do this work, that that the opportunities are endless for people who want to enter this career. And I think we view NACA, we view our job as, 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 as teaching people, as helping them succeed in this area, giving them the skills they need um, to successfully represent consumers and, and to give them the you know give them the relationships and the tools um, so that they'll be both better attorneys and better entrepreneurs because it really that's not those are not things you learn in law school for sure. So one question I have is you know we know on the federal level a lot of the consumer laws came into place starting in the really in the early 70s with the FDCPA and we have the FCRA and they all start coming in around then. Um, Truth and Lending Act and and RESPA, those are kind of the the core ones that I think of. Um, And then it seems like on the state level, slowly but surely, we keep getting new UDAP statutes or stronger ones added in, in in the evolutionary history. They are are also under attack. Uh, There's been, in some ways, we see uh, the Chamber of Commerce and their friends try to limit the effectiveness of state consumer protection statutes as well. So with when you look at the trajectory, I mean, why I understand NACA has grown a lot and it seems like there's a growing number of people going from the private practice side into this industry. Um, what what led us to, you know, why, why did it take 30, 40 years for that evolution to really start growing? And, and uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, again, it's, you know, People take the easiest path, right? And this was not a recognized area of law where you could build a career in. And I think you just need people as examples. So, for instance, in 1994, when I think when NACA was originally formed, it was 12 attorneys coming together, right, around the country who were doing consumer law. That was it, 12 people. Hmm. And and even though the law had been drafted, right? So one of the key things that people need to understand about consumer protection law is that the laws were drafted to encourage private attorney generals. It really was built so that private attorneys can represent consumers to uphold the law. That's why we have fee-shifting statutes, right? So the intent when those laws were created was to encourage the private part to do those cases. And you're right. 20 years in, there was not a lot of private attorneys doing that. Um, I think there's a number of reasons why that happened, um, that we saw in instant growth. I mean, interestingly enough, I think the earliest consumer attorneys really did grow out of the legal aid movement, right? And so you, in the 90s, you know, during the contract on America years, legal aid was being cut. A number of attorneys were losing their jobs. A number of legal aid programs were stopping, were not doing consumer law, too. Their, their programs were being cut to, to, 
to the bone, and so they would be doing some of their core stuff, which they considered public housing and welfare. And so they were doing less consumer law. But those attorneys who were doing consumer law and legal aid programs, you know, that's what they knew and that's what they wanted to do. And I think those were the first people who began working their way into the into into the practice of consumer law in a private setting. So I think that was the first step in. And I think over the years, as our community has grown, um, you know, the evangel for want of a better word, but the you know we've you know the bunch of evangelizing that we've done that there really is opportunity here um, for for growth, and I think people have begun to recognize that. And the more we get out there, and the more folks begin to recognize, the more law schools begin to teach these classes, the more law schools have consumer clinics. Um, that's all evolved in the last 20 years, but really the first 20 years of the creation of those statutes that were designed to create, to encourage private consumer law, they just, you know, it really did not work. There was just not a lot of attorneys doing that kind of work, and I think we've begun to, and we're still not nearly enough. Again, I, I keep going back to that point, but, you know, we may have grown substantially, but there's room for a lot more growth and a lot more room for, for attorneys to do this kind of work. How do you feel, is there an, I know obviously you deal a lot with the legislative side and uh, you testify before Congress fairly regularly. Um, How, what is, what is of a greater impact if you were to choose one? Is it, you know, the groundwork of being in courts and implementing and representing people or is it, you know, really the legislative side, the, the bill passing? In terms of the impact for what, I'm sorry. Well, in terms of which, which has a. Uh, if we were to draw a five-year timeline, do you think that it's more likely to expand consumer rights through active litigation in courts or through a legislative <laughs> process? Um, honestly, um, you know, it's interesting. So in the last, you, you mentioned that in the 1970s, we passed all of these sort of landmark laws, Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, Fair Credit Reporting Act, you know, and, and uh, Truth in Lending, um, RESPA, TILA, all those laws sort of came about in the same period of time. From the 70s until 2008, there really were not much, many laws passed to improve federal uh, consumer protection law in, 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 on the federal level. It took the economic crisis, mm-hmm. right, to move that ball to, to become, to create some more effective laws that would help people in consumer protection. So I think in some ways waiting for legislative action to help consumers, while good, and sometimes that only happens in terms of a crisis. I think the steady, the, the important work, the steady work that makes the world better for consumers often happens on a day-to-day basis in our courtrooms. And I think in some ways, industry understands that so very well, which is why we've seen such an attack on people's right to uh, have a hearing of, of before their peers. It's why we've seen the growth of arbitration clauses across you know, the specter of consumer contracts because the courts have been such an effective place of sort of pushing back against corporate greed. And it's given consumers a real opportunity to both change the law and get redress when they've been cheated. And so I think you know, when we're looking for change, in many ways, legislation follows court achievement. And I think the work that our folks do every single day in courtrooms make an enormous amount of difference um, in their communities' lives. Federal legislation gets done. It can make a big difference. But if we're waiting for legislation to be passed, 
um, we wait a long time. It's, it's the day-to-day work that we do in our courtrooms that makes such a difference in our, in our clients and consumers and in our community's lives. You know, as a you know, advocate in private practice, I find myself often representing you know, Mr. Individual who is uh, middle to low income against a you know, very profitable company that hires a 500 plus lawyer firm right, to represent them. You know, people up in the ivory towers. And um, obviously, that's a a major disadvantage on on your side, on the legislative side. You're also dealing with, uh, you know, the corporate lobby is much larger. I mean, we know that the, you know, the national conferences for the arm industry is many times larger than than our conferences. How do you deal with uh, those disadvantages? And uh, what's that like from from your side of the game? ready. We have allies in Congress. We have a lot of allies in Congress. I think we organize. We have, I mean, the strength of NACA as a legislative organization, as an organization engaged in lobbying, are our members and our members' stories. What we can achieve by simply bringing real people to their Congress people, it's such an important part of the work that we do. Telling stories, touching people, touching Congress people with their constituent stories makes an enormous amount of difference. We're never going to match folks with the amount of, uh, amount of uh, paid staff they have. And we're never going to match them in terms of the amount of money they have. But we have you know, two things on our side. One, we have stories and we have truth. And we just keep telling those stories and we use the free media and we use um, the stories that our members collect and the examples that we see and it can make an enormous difference. Now sometimes, as I described earlier, it takes a crisis for us to really achieve you know, substantial changes. But we can prevent a lot of bad things from happening simply by the strength of our stories and the strength, the strength of the truth that we represent. So. You know, it's, it's a battle. It's really tough. I mean, I've been working on these issues. I mean, I came to Washington in 2001 screaming bloody murder about the, about the mortgage crisis that was about to happen. God knows how many times I testified and talked about what was happening in communities and people were losing wealth and losing, losing equity and, and it was destroying our communities and nobody paid attention until everything collapsed. The thing was, we were there when, when everything collapsed and had solutions that we had been pushing for a number of years. So some of it is opportunity, some of it is the politics of the moment, but just being there, building those relationships over time, having stories to tell, that gives us the opportunity to make a difference. But yeah, it, it's definitely a battle. And I, I, the, one, the one thing that is hard to explain, uh, and I know members get frustrated, attorneys I talk to around the country get frustrated, well, why can't you change that? Or why, why hasn't that happened already? Why isn't the law being fixed? And legislation is really slow, right? And our victories, we have to measure in, in you know, seconds, of, uh, seconds on, the, uh, on the clock. So we'll have a hearing on an issue. Like in the coming, coming months, I expect that we'll have a big uh, House hearing on arbitration. We're introducing a new bill uh, to protect consumers from arbit- forced arbitration clauses. Now, that will be a big victory, that we are having a public hearing that talks about the ills of forced arbitration on consumers. That will be a, a tremendous you know, a moment for us. That doesn't change the law yet. Right. You really, when you do the kind of work we do, you really have to think about the long game. 
you cannot, and you have to find your victory when you can, right? Oh, well, one of our members' clients testified in the House. That's a victory. Having a hearing is a victory. Having bills introduced is a victory because we understand that this is an incredibly incremental process. Um, but, you know, you do it because you know you're right and you want to make the world a better place, and then ultimately you'll be there when the opportunity arises again, like okay. it did, you know, eight, nine years ago. Right, it takes time, but the moral arc of the universe does move towards justice. I sure hope so, because right now it's not feeling that way, but <laughs> I, I do believe that as well. So, I mean, let's let's turn to that, right? The, the great hope that, you know, is the CFPB or was the CFPB, I'd like to say yep. is. Yep. Um, because obviously yep. it's still there. There have been some changes, um, some forced structural changes through the courts, etc. cetera. Uh, but let's assume that the pendulum swings. I mean, what role do you see the CFPB? I'd like to know what role you see the CFPB serving and how you believe the most appropriate interaction between, you know, the private's attorney general Okay, the private practice attorneys and, and attorneys at legal services, et cetera, should be interacting with the CFPB to maximize its uh, effectiveness. Sure. I mean, it's a, these are tough times for the CFPB right now. There are still lots of really, really good people who are committed to consumer justice who work at the CFPB. A lot of those efforts are, are being mitigated or, or are limited by the current leadership, political leadership there. I think that we can't give up hope that things will change. I think that as attorneys, as consumer advocates, we need to still make sure our clients are filing complaints with the CFPB. It's still really, really important that we engage with their enforcement people. We tell them what's going on in the community because they have an enormous power. Right? What's interesting about the CFPB is they not only can bring enforcement, they can do rulemaking, and they do supervision of these places, right? No one, no one ever had supervision over debt collectors before, or the credit reporting agency, they do. Now, they may not be doing as well as we like right now, and in fact, they are not based on, you know, again, the political leadership there. But we need to maintain a constant conversation with them. And when they try to do rulemaking, we need to be out there commenting on those rules. One of the things that we're, we're going to be getting this spring is a, uh, a proposed rule on the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, right? They're going to do rulemaking around that. We as consumer advocates are going to need to step up and engage in that process and tell our stories and tell them the truth because we know that there's undue influence from industry when that rulemaking comes out. So we need to be actively engaged with that agency. We need to continue to build relationships with enforcement staff, with supervision staff, with rulemaking staff. Um, and at some point, you know, God willing, the 2020 election, um, things will change and we'll have a, a political environment we will have leaders in our country who are actually interested in protecting consumers as opposed to protecting corporate power. Mm -hmm. And I mean, thank you for saying that. And, and I want to know uh, what are, you know, what's on the horizon for NACA? What are your goals uh, in the next, you know, short to midterm? Uh, well, I mean, they're different goals, right? I mean, we talked, we covered some of this stuff. Yeah. Right? So one of our goals is really, is, is the short term is, is to keep building on our presence in law schools, keep building the consumer bar, build, continue to build opportunities for attorneys to succeed in consumer law. So I mean, that, and, and figure out what things we can do better 
to help support attorneys who are in this practice? What can we do better in terms of training, in terms of support, in terms of, of uh, benefits to help people succeed? So that's always short-term, that's long-term as well. On the legislative front, I mean, right now we're playing defense, right? So we are, and we have, and we're getting to play some offense too, right? So our legislative priorities is all, will always be forced arbitration. That will always be number one, the elimination of forced arbitration. And like I said, we'll, there should be an announcement coming shortly maybe even after, uh, maybe even done before this podcast is released about a new bill that will protect um, arbitration, that, that will uh, end forced arbitration. We know it won't be passed immediately, but that doesn't mean we can't have hearings and push that issue. That's part of our short-term. Long-term, we want to eliminate forced arbitration and consumer contracts. Short-term, we want to get that issue out in front of people. We want the House of Representatives to have hearings and maybe even have a vote to pass a bill like that. Um, and then short-term, it's playing defense against the CFPB. If they attempted to make rules that roll back the protections under the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, if they attempt to issue rules that that um, lower the bar for payday lenders to steal money from people, mm-hmm. if um, the other bank regulators do things that will do damage to consumers, we need to be responding to some of that. Some of it will be responsive and defensive to try to protect the gains that we've had over the past decade, but we'll also look at moving things forward. Um, we have, we're working on a big bill to sort of change uh, um, some tax law and, and the way attorney's fees are treated in consumer law. That's a big priority for us. Getting a bill introduced, we're actually litigating that issue as well. Um, so those are our short-term. Short-term and long-term both tie together. We understand the things that we do short-term aren't going to give us an immediate victory, but it's always with the future in mind and how we build the steps necessary to achieve our goals. Ira, do you have any uh, requests or messages for consumer attorneys out there, NACA members or not? Yeah, I mean, I, one, if you need anything from us, you need to let us know. I'm as available as anybody. Please contact me if there's any way I can. we can help you. That's one thing. Two is we need you engaged. We need you engaged. We don't know. You're out there practicing law. You need to tell us how we can help you. What are the things that you need to be better consumer attorneys? What do you need to be more successful consumer attorneys? And if there's a way we can offer it, we will offer it to you. On the latest legislative front, we need you engaged and involved. In fact, one of the projects that we're involved in, which I haven't even mentioned yet, is a project called Consumer Rising. And uh, Consumers Rising. And the idea is, is to get your clients engaged. And one of the things that we want to do is provide resources for our members to talk to their clients about these issues, right? So one of the ways that consumer attorneys can be successful is by having contact with their existing and past clients, right? It's always good to be talking with them. So can we create messaging for our members around some of the political issues we care about? Um, have, have, be ready to, to share your stories with your Congress people. Be ready to meet with Congress and be ready to have your clients do the same. Engage your clients in the political process when it's available. And I mean, one of the interesting things that I've found over the years is that while, you know, right now, you know, the party of our president um, is, is just is on a destructive path when it comes to consumer protection, most people, regardless of party, when you talk to them about consumer issues, they get it completely. Right? I've talked to our members in Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana, and they go to courts there, and they win all the time because folks fundamentally un- understand unfairness. Our issue is not 
issues are not blue or red. They seem to be that way right now. But it's essential that you get your clients, regardless of their political affiliation, to be involved politically. There's no reason why somebody in a deep red state can't talk to their congressman and say, hey, wait a second, I'm being cheated here. I can't get access to the courts. This company cheated me, um, and yet I can't even take them to court. They're suing me for a debt I don't owe, but if I try to bring an action against them, I can't even go to court. How do we get those people engaged? So my message to our members and the consumer attorneys is become involved in the political process. Help us protect the laws that you use to be successful and engage your clients in that action as well. It really is not a partisan. These issues are really not partisan. They become partisan, but they really are not. And I don't think that anybody who votes for a Republican or Democrat, particularly you know, a Republican, are, saying, are thinking about consumer issues when they're casting their vote. And I think it's really important that we engage them regardless of party to, to support some of the things that we care about. Ira, thank you so much for your time. I think that's a fantastic message. And I encourage everyone, just as you asked, uh, to get involved, be active, and take advantage of NACA. Ira can't read our minds, so we got to tell him what we need. And, and I'd add, become involved. We have committees yeah. for everybody. And, you know, we, we want member leaders, right? Um, NACA is you. NACA are consumer attorneys. We do what you want. We ask you to lead us. Um, we are driven by serving our members, and our members need to serve our organization so we can be better for all of you. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Adam.